Conversation that often happens, maybe it happens to you regularly, is someone may say, can you tell me about a new show you've watched that I can watch, a new series that I can follow? Maybe say, instead of, you know, instead of having to scroll through Netflix, never ending, trying to find something, if someone says, here's a show that I like, you're like, okay, well, tell me about it. Maybe give me a summary, like sum it up in a few words, what is the show about? Now, for me, I don't, I don't love shows, movies much, but I do like books, and so I would take the same approach. I'm always on the outlook for, for someone who's read a new book and say, oh, is it good? Save me from like scrolling endlessly on Amazon. Like, what's a book? And then if they say, this is a really good one, I would say, can you get, you know, not an exhaustive explanation, but tell me about the book. Sum it up for me in just a few words. Sometimes when we think about the Bible, we think the Bible is so massive that we wonder, how could we ever sort of tie it together? But in fact, we find in the Bible some summary statements, certain places that, that sum up much of the Bible in just a few words. And this morning in our passage, we'll find that from Jesus himself, who will give us a, not an exhaustive, but a, but a summary statement he will say of the entire Old Testament, of how God's people are to live in the world. He'll sum it up in just a few words. And that's what we'll see this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 7, uh, beginning in verse 12. In the Bibles near you, you can find that on page 812. Page 812. If you have a Bible app, you might open that up. But I encourage you, just so you can see the text in front of you, you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from this morning. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, there's a stack of Bibles there. Following the service, just grab one of those and take it with you. And if you're newer to reading the Bible today, uh, the, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 7. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll begin in verse 12 and work our way forward from that. So Matthew 7, beginning in verse 12, these are the words of Jesus. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Today in our passage, we see this main emphasis. Selflessly and actively love others as you travel the way that leads to life. Selflessly and actively love others as you travel the way that leads to life. And we'll look at our text this morning in two parts. So first, we'll see embrace expansive love. And second, enter the narrow way. Embrace expansive love, enter the narrow way. So first, embrace expansive love in verse 12. If you've been with us in recent weeks, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and in particular, we've been in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. As we've been reminding ourselves each week so we don't lose sight of what's going on here, this is Jesus the King who's describing in this sermon what life in his kingdom is like. So this is what a, a disciple of Jesus is to, to live like this. This is what we're to embrace and those things we're not to do. And so we're continuing that this morning uh, in verse 12. And notice in verse 12 that Jesus says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now this phrase, the law and the prophets, we saw earlier in the sermon. So back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it said this, 
Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in this sermon, 5 through 7, these serve as sort of bookends for the central portion of the sermon. Law and the prophets, 5.17. Law and the prophets, chapter 7, verse 12. Now, like any good preacher, he doesn't just end. He'll actually keep going. There's a few more things we'll see next week when, Lord willing, we finish the sermon. But that's sort of the center of this Sermon on the Mount, 5.17 to 7.12. And Jesus gives here, in verse 12, what's often referred to as the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. You've likely heard that in a variety of sectors of your life, maybe slightly different words, but something very similar. Now, in the Bible, we have what we call the two great commandments that God consistently has given to us. The first is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. This golden rule is is close to what we see in the second commandment. It's very similar to love your neighbor as yourself. Jonathan Pennington, an author, says it this way, Do to others, as you would want them to do to you, is a helpful, memorable adage in a proverbial form. So it's, it's memorable. You, you take it with you as you think about how am I to live this week. Do unto others, as I would have them do unto me. That, that's helpful. I can take that with me. And notice that Jesus is saying that this is a useful summary of all of the law and the prophets. As we saw back in chapter 5, by this term, the law and the prophets, he's referring to, to all of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus is not saying this is an exhaustive explanation of all of it, but he's saying this cuts to the heart of what is it that God's people are to do? How is it that God's people are to live in this world? What does true, righteous living look like? It is to love others from the love of God as God loves us. Now, what we refer to here as the golden rule is not unique to Christianity. So there are some other uh, philosophies, other world religions that use something very similar. So this is not only found in Christianity, but most of the time it's found in the negative form, which would go something like this. Do not do anything to another that you wouldn't want done to yourself. So for instance, you would apply it and say, well, if you don't want others to steal from you, you shouldn't steal from others. If you don't want others to gossip about you, then don't gossip about others. And that's certainly a good start. We would commend that to you. But also because it's in a negative form, it is passive. So it's not doing anything bad, but it's also the absence of doing good. So you're choosing not to do negative things, but you're not doing anything positive necessarily on behalf of others. So you could move away, it's like the move to the mountains of Vermont, live alone, and you could live this out because it's the absence of doing bad to others. But what Jesus is calling us to here is active engagement, the positive form, which is much more expansive. It's a call to active care of others. It's a call to doing, to actively love. And this is intended to be carried out by the follower of Jesus in every area of life. Our translation begins, verse 12, so whatever. Other translations have it as in whatever. But the sense of the phrase is this is to be our mindset at all times. In every relationship, do to others what you would want them to do to you. So we want to regularly be thinking, how would I want to be treated in this situation? And that helps me to be guided in how I then 
should treat others. Jonathan Pennington helpfully says this. He says, Matthew 7.12 beautifully summarizes the way of being in the world that no amount of rules or regulations could ever encompass or hope to promote. The golden rule is not so much a rule but a vision. It is an invitation to virtue by giving a vision of how to relate to other people. Because think about it, if, if Jesus was to try to give us rules for every scenario of life, every relational situation, it would be an endless list of rules. So instead, he gives this, this picture, this helpful outlook that says, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. Think about what would I want someone to do to me, and I do it to them. That answers so many of the questions in relationships and in our lives. And when we look, honestly, at verse 12, we should see that what Jesus calls us to here is quite clear. This is not difficult to interpret. Sometimes Jesus is difficult to interpret. Sometimes the Bible isn't so clear. It takes hard work to say, what is this saying? But this is not one of those situations. It's very straightforward. Here's what you're to do. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So the challenge here is not understanding it. The challenge is actually doing it. That's the hard part. We know what he's saying, but the question is, can we or will we consistently do this? And of course, if we know ourselves well at all, we know that so often, though this is simple and straightforward and a very helpful summary, we don't do this. We so often have failed to do this. In fact, we can't do it perfectly. We would never do it perfectly. And so the good news for the Christian is that Christ did for us what we most needed someone to do for us, even though we didn't even know we needed it. He came to save sinners and rebels like us when we were trapped in it, and we were not looking for a Savior, but God was so gracious and kind that Jesus came to do for us what we would never do for ourselves, what we could never do for ourselves. Giving himself selflessly on the cross, rising triumphant, and in Jesus' life and ministry, he shows us what this looks like in action doing grace and love for others. And so the work of Christ shapes and empowers our lives as we seek to embrace this way. So it is true that the golden rule is not unique to Christianity, but the power and motivation for it is unique to Christianity. For the power that we have as Christians to do this is not our own strength. We don't think that we just have the, the moral commitment to carry it out. We, we don't think we're so strong, but it is the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us. That's our only hope, but it is our hope to do this. And our motivation in walking in the golden rule is not to try to climb our way towards God. It is not moral achievement, but it is we've been so loved by God, therefore we love others. Christ has done for us what we could never do, and so we do for others. So the, the means and the motivation for what we're doing is unique to Christianity. The fountain of love that we've been brought into that flows from God in us, that's what empowers it. So we receive the boundless love of God, and then we love others. So empowered and fueled by the love of God, we give ourselves to this sort of living, doing to others what we wish that others would do to us. And we should note that this is not intended to be transactional. Jesus does not say, if others do this to you, you should do it to them. 
So if others extend the golden rule to you, they're brought into the circle and you give the golden rule back to them. That's not what he says. It's not, well, they did it to me. I have to do it to them. I guess I have to do it back. That's not what Jesus says. And we might be tempted to listen to a text like this and to look around at others in our life and then ask, are they doing this for me? Are they showing this sort of neighbor love to me? But that's not what Jesus is calling to. Instead, the the emphasis here is, am I doing this for them? Am I loving like this? Loving him, loving her in this way. And in this outlook, Jesus calls us to reject selfishness, which so often fuels the way that we live. But related to that, John Stott says this. He says, self-advantage often guides us in our own affairs. Now, we must be able to let it guide us in our behavior to others. All we have to do is use our imagination, put ourselves in other person's shoes and ask, how would I like to be treated in that situation? That's the question. Now, of course, we, we don't apply this in a wooden manner, just thinking through only my preferences. So, for instance, to me... The gift that I'm always happy to receive would be coffee and cookies, particularly chocolate chip cookies. So, so those are always the right gifts, Christmas, birthday, Friday, you name it. Like those are, that's always the right gift. So I could think that's what I would love for someone to do to me. So therefore, everyone else must always want that for theirs. So every gift that I give to you is coffee, but apparently, strangely, not everyone loves coffee. I don't know. I don't know how you're functioning in life. I think you're, you're missing out on, on the true life. But, it, but apparently, it would not be loving for me to give coffee and cookies to everyone. So we don't apply it in a wooden way. But we are trying to think, what, how would I want to be loved? And that then guides me in how I might love. How do I want to be cared for? That shapes how I might care for others So we have to engage our minds, our hearts, our imaginations. So if you love to be encouraged, you should encourage others. In the way that you love to be thanked, express thanks to others. When you really enjoy thoughtful gifts, give thoughtful gifts to others. As we begin to think about the application in our lives, the the applications are countless. We can think about even just this passage, beginning in chapter 7. A few weeks ago, we started in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And we saw in the text a call away from harsh judgmentalness, that we must not be harshly judgmental. And we looked at this reality that, one, we we always have this sort of log of sin in our own eyes, that we must remove it. But upon removing it, there is a time and place to help remove a splinter from someone else's eye. So we come to that and we think, through. okay, if, if I do need to approach a brother or sister who has a splinter of sin in their eye, we ask, if that was me, how would I want them to come to me? How would I want them to approach me if they're going to tell me about sin that I'm trapped in? So that helps to guide us in how to do it. We continue on just two weeks ago. We're in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, and Jesus was urging us to, to ask and keep asking in prayer. And we ask with great confidence because our Heavenly Father knows what we need and gives good gifts to His children. When we think about the people around us, what would we want people to do for us? We'd want people to pray for us. So one of the most loving things you could ever do for anyone in your life, not the only thing, but one of the most loving things is to just faithfully pray for them. It's a way to live this out. 
No, we could apply it to our, our gathering like this this morning. When we gather like this, we could ask, how would I want to care for others who are gathering with me? So let's say you're, you're a member here at Hope or you attend here regularly, and someone comes here for the very first time. So you might think through, what was it like for me to attend for the first time? So how could I love and welcome someone who's new? Because for the vast majority of people, attending someplace new is really hard. Now, if you're like an extraordinary extrovert, you're like, bring it on. Like, I'm, I love to meet new people. I love to go to new places. I'm a pastor. I spend a lot of time in churches. I hate visiting new churches. Occasionally, I'm out of town, and I go to a church for the first time. and It's awkward. It feels strange meeting people. I'm enough of an introvert that it can be difficult. So all of us would think through, okay, if someone was new here, how could I communicate? I'm glad that you're here. How can I care for them to say, hey, here's, here's what's going on, or hey, you could even sit with me if you don't want to sit alone. A tangible way to care. There are other ways throughout our gathering. So, so one way is to think through how do we love, so someone might say, you know what, I'd love to just simply help with the refreshments we serve following the service. Because to me, I would really love to be able to stand around and, and share coffee and cookies outside as a means of connecting. So you might say, I want to do for others by helping with that. Or it might be children's ministry. Maybe you don't have children of your own. We say, I would like, if I had children, to have people caring for my kids. And so I want to serve in that. Or it might be an ongoing ministry like our drop-in homeless ministry that happens this evening. We try to think through. So if, if you were in that situation, facing struggles like that, how would you want to be treated? How would you want to be cared for as a person, a value? So that guides us as we think. And then it bridges out beyond that to every area and relationship in life. So if you live with some other people, you have housemates, and you think through, how do I relate to my housemates? And probably in particular, the housemate who's more difficult. How, how would you want to be treated if you were that person? How might that shape the way you do and care for them? Or if you're in your family, if you're married, thinking about your spouse. How would you want your spouse to relate to you on this topic? And that could help you think through how to relate to them. Coworkers. The varied relationships you have with coworkers. How do you think about this coworker and say, how would I do for them what I'd like to be done for me? To show the same patience to them that I would like to receive. The same grace to them that I would hope someone would show to me. If you find yourself in a relationship struggle, maybe a rift in a relationship, and maybe forgiveness is needed, I wonder, will you forgive them in the way that you would want someone to forgive you? We would all want to be forgiven ourselves. Will we freely extend forgiveness in that way? Now, sometimes as we seek to apply this, we, we do have to think on a broader level. So, for instance, if you have a, a neighbor who you're trying to care for, and you want to help meet basic needs, but your neighbor also, you come to realize, doesn't know Christ. And your neighbor might never say, I wish someone would tell me about Jesus. But you might think it through and say, actually, if that was me, knowing what I know, I would want someone to tell me about Jesus. So then that might lead you to sort of careful, patient, diligent, seeking to share. Or in the situation with a brother or sister in Christ who, who maybe is wandering in sin. 
And so you're trying to think through, how do I relate to him or her? That they're trapped in the fog of sin. But if you think about it in your own mind, you might think, well, when I'm trapped in the fog of sin, I actually don't want someone to come looking for me. I want to be as far from God's people as I can when I'm trapped in the fog of sin. So then I want to pull myself back and say, but when I'm not trapped in it, outside of that, I would want, when I'm trapped in it, someone to come looking for me. So begin to think that through and to say, actually, no, yeah, if, if he is trapped in a fog of sin, I do want to do for him what I wish someone would do for me, which is to come looking, come searching for me. So friend, what would it look like for you today, this week, to think about what you would want others to do for you and to do it for them? How might this impact life at home, in the workplace, on campus, with neighbors? How might you embrace this expansive love? But then second, we see in our text, enter the narrow way. Enter the narrow way in verse 13 and 14. Here Jesus describes two gates, two roads, two crowds, and also two destinies. And Jesus says there's one gate that is wide. And once you go to the wide gate, the way gets even wider. The way you're walking is, is wide, it is smooth, it is easy. And on this wide way, there are numerous options available. There's some who choose the wide way of religion. But it isn't true righteousness. In this sermon, we've seen Jesus go at some religious people, the Pharisees, and has critiqued in them a self-righteousness. Where if you remember, he, he went at them for how they prayed in public to be seen. They gave of their financial resources in public to be seen. Now, they would look like, of all people, the most righteous, yet Jesus has pinned them down to say, in fact, they, they lack righteousness altogether. So it's possible to embrace a wide way that looks like you're on the narrow way, but in fact, you're far from God, but you're only far from God through religion, but it's not the true way of Jesus. And then many choose the wide way of our own making. So many of us today embrace an outlook that says something like, look, in life, what we're to do is simply do what you want. Whatever satisfies you, whatever makes you feel happy and whole, comfortable, embrace that. Most of all, you be you. Don't be what anyone else wants you to be. Be you. And so we craft a belief system of our own making. Maybe, in fact, we do incorporate a little bit of Jesus, but this wide way is far from the true way of Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in writing his own spiritual journey, he writes of how when he was a teenager, before he became a Christian, some of his thoughts, and here's what Lewis writes. From the tyrannous noon of revelation, meaning God's word, I passed into the cool evening of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed, except what was either comforting or exciting. This was written decades ago, but I think C.S. Lewis was ahead of his time. But this is the world we live in where, where there's really nothing to be obeyed, nothing really to be believed except whatever is comfortable to you, whatever is exciting to you, whatever satisfies you where you are today. It's a dominant thought in our world. 
where most of all we just want to consider, how do I feel? How do I feel now? That's what I will do. That's what I will follow. And that becomes infinitely more important than anything that's been revealed, for instance, in the Scriptures, where there is someone to trust in, someone to believe. There are some things to obey. And friends, this wide way is so dangerous because there is an enemy of people's souls who wants us to believe that this wide way is the way to true life. And Jesus warns us it's dangerous because the wide way is popular. Many are taking it so that way it's all the more attractive. If you walk this wide way today, no one will oppose you. People will applaud you and encourage you on that. You'll say, absolutely, take the path that satisfies you, that makes you happy, that, that matches what you feel. Friends, we see the sobering warning that the wide way leads to a devastating end, Jesus says, to destruction, destruction of our souls. Author D.A. Carson says it this way, the tragedy is that otherwise reasonable people become so enamored with spaciousness and the popularity of their path, that they take little thought as to its destination. Should they hear that it leads to destruction, they will deny it, arguing they're no worse than most others on the same road, and that in any case, God would not permit the destruction of so many. Let me state emphatically that the Scriptures do not encourage such optimism. Jesus himself insists that only the narrow way leads to life. And we hear the talk of wide gate and narrow way. Many might say, well, this idea of a narrow gate, that's the creation of some narrow-minded Christians. Maybe in particular, some narrow-minded pastors who created this message. Friends, we should see these are not the words of a preacher. These are Jesus' own words. He's the one making this argument. He's the one issuing this warning. Jesus wants to make very clear, there are only two ways, and there's a choice to be made. And so it's easy for us to see this as only negative, but friends, we should see that Jesus is announcing there is a way. A way has been made. The fact is, all of us deserve destruction. None of us deserve salvation, life. But Jesus is saying, he's the very gate. He's the way in. He's the way forward. He is salvation. So even as Jesus warns of the wide road that leads to destruction, he gives a strong invitation. He begins by saying, enter in the narrow gate. So Jesus is not saying there is a narrow gate, but only if you can find it. There, there is a narrow gate that leads to life, but, but it's kind of hidden away from you. No, he's saying there is a narrow gate, and notice he invites any and all who will come can enter into this narrow gate. That's what Jesus is saying in the text. Jesus came to provide this way. He went to the greatest lengths through his own suffering and death, what appeared to be total destruction as he dies, but he was raised triumphant to purchase, to provide true life. And now Jesus is saying to us, come to the way. Enter in through the narrow gate. A way has been provided through Christ. Imagine with me that there was a, an island out in the Pacific. So it's a relatively small island. 
It's beautiful, sunny every day, unlike spring in Boston. So it's sunny and warm, and people often travel there, but the only way you can get there, you can't fly there, is that a cruise ship brings you there, and you get off and spend several days on this beautiful, scenic island. And so there are people there enjoying a beautiful day, and this different ship pulls up. It's a pretty unimpressive cargo ship. And somebody gets off the cargo ship and announces that the reality they say is that there is a tsunami coming that is going to wipe out the island. There's no other way. The cruise ship is not coming, but but salvation is available through this ship for any and all who will come to the ship. So the, the, the captain of the ship goes on trying to persuade people to come onto the ship. But people look around and they say, look, seas are smooth today. There's no tsunami coming. There's no danger. Others say, well, you know, I mean, I I, I would think about leaving, but I'm not going to leave on a cargo ship. I mean, if there was a cruise ship, perhaps I would leave, but I'm not going to leave like that. And so most reject this message. They say, we're going to stay, but a few get on the ship and they are saved. They are delivered. And this is what's happening in Jesus' words. Jesus is saying, there is destruction, but friends, the good news is there is a way. Jesus came to make a way, and he is clearly inviting any and all, enter through the way. So what does Jesus want us to do in response? It is enter through him. Understand you're a sinner in need of a Savior, friend. Turn to Christ by faith. Repent and believe in Jesus today. So friend, I wonder if you're honest, which gate are you going through right now? Which path are you on? No one accidentally moves into the narrow way. No one accidentally drifts into salvation. We only enter into the narrow gate, into salvation. We understand our need. and We turn to Christ by faith. So friends, we face a choice. And I want to plead with you, if you're not a Christian, turn to Christ today. Jesus says, enter into the way. Jesus wants us to take this narrow gate onto what he calls the hard way. And this hard way, he says, is taken only by a few. And this often difficult road is what Jesus is describing as life in his kingdom. And as we've seen across the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said that following him in this life doesn't guarantee ease. It doesn't guarantee prosperity. In fact, he's told us that following him in this life will often lead to difficulty, opposition, and suffering. And yet he's been assuring us that this is the true life, the truly flourishing life, but the life that is hard. This is the life that's truly worth living. And Jesus says this life leads to life eternal. Of course, the challenge is the wide road will often look like life. The wide road looks like the life that's worth living, and the way of Jesus actually looks like destruction sometimes because of its difficulty, because of its cost, because of its suffering. Just to the eye, we think, that's real life, the wide road everyone's on. Why would I want to take the difficult path of Jesus? My friends, across the New Testament, we're assured that the temporary comfort of the traveler is not an indicator of the destination. That the goal is not our comfort day to day. We are called in the scriptures sojourners or pilgrims. We're passing through, headed to our future, truest home. 
It sometimes is costly and lonely in this life, but this is the true life. And if you just read across the New Testament, we find it. For instance, the book of 1 Peter, they're filled with pictures describing suffering, difficulty, opposition, but this is the life that is truly life. And friends, for those who are Christians, sometimes trials, suffering, and pain can shake our confidence in Christ. It can cause us to doubt his goodness, even wonder if we're on the right path. But friends, trials in this life are, are not typically the sign we're on the wrong path, but, but often for the Christian, the sign we're on the right path. It's evidence that we're actually on the path with Jesus when we're facing opposition and difficulty. To live out what we just saw in verse 12, to do unto others as we would have them do to us, is not an easy life. It will be costly. But it is right and beautiful. It is the narrow path. And friends, Christ walked this path as he walked the earth. So now, by the Spirit, he will help you to walk it as well. The way of Jesus is often hard, and it can be lonely because there are only a few on it. So therefore, friends, a wise caution to the Christian is, therefore, don't try to go it alone. Christians should never try to go it alone. It's a great temptation. It's very commonly tried in the U.S. among people who profess to be Christians. But Christianity was never intended to be just me and Jesus. Never intended to be just me and my Bible. But because it's difficult, because there's suffering, and because we're lonely, we need other people with us. It's one of the many reasons we need a local church. So I recommend people to find a local church that preaches the same gospel and lock arms with people. And say, I'm in it with you as a member committed to one another as we walk this difficult path. So if you're curious about membership, we would encourage you to consider taking the next class that's actually this Friday. We need others, we need others in our lives because it's lonely, but not only because it's lonely, but also because it's difficult to keep moving forward. We each have a profound ability to justify our own choices and our own sin. I can rationalize almost anything that I do. So I need people who love me enough to not let me do that. We need others, not just our own preferences, not just our own whims. I, I don't really want to live, live a life based only on what makes me feel good. That may be satisfying for a time, but that's not eternally sufficient. So I need some people who say, that may feel good for now, but is that really for your good? Is it really healthy for you? So we are these people who walk this hard way. And on this hard way, we find life. And because of the, the narrow way Christ has provided, we're a people who have been sobered by that and then should be propelled into the mission of Jesus that others would know of this invitation and warning. There's both sobering news from Jesus and saving news. The Savior has come. So friend, if there is a narrow gate, but one must enter into it, as I think about my neighbor and think about what they most need, it is to hear that good news. So it's costly. It's risky to share with neighbors and friends and coworkers. But if you were in that situation, wouldn't you want someone to come and tell you? the sobering and the saving news of Christ. Friends, Jesus invites each of us today into this narrow way. 
the way of true life. And friend, if you're not a Christian, I urge you today, turn to Christ by faith. And if you have entered, if you're on the hard, narrow, sometimes lonely way, friend, be encouraged. It is hard. It will be hard throughout life. It is costly. It is marked by pain. But friend, Christ is with you. And he will be with you to the end. He will keep you to the end. And as we walk this way, as we walk this narrow path together, let's embrace this expansive love for others, doing for others in our life what we wish they would do for us. And through that, friends, we will be the salt and light that Christ intends us to be so that he would be glorified in our city.